Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on feps-europe.eu. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the next episode of the FEPS Talks, uh, where we are having a very special guest, uh, Dr. Patrick Diamond, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at Queen's Mary University of London, Chair of Policy Network, Fellow at uh, Oxford University, but also importantly, a very experienced member of the Labour Party, one of the key strategists uh, at the policy unit at number 10 by the time Labour has been in power. And today with us for a very special occasion, new book of Patrick is out, The British Labour Party in Opposition and Power, 1979-2019. Patrick, congratulations on the book and lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much, Anya. Well, it's great to be with you. Um, I've worked with FEPS for many years. It's a great organisation, so it's a real honour for me to appear in your podcast. So there is a teaser about the book. You speak about opposition and you speak about power, but having got a sneaky peek of uh, what the book contains, clearly you cover quite of a vast material of the different ups and downs of the Labour Party. Let's start from the post-war history. So what are the things that you would say that the current social democrats looking for inspiration or looking for the lessons what not to do should still draw from the period of the post-war labor well the book really starts looking at labor's position in the period immediately after the second world war and in a sense the question which is posed early on in the book is why is the initial success that labor enjoys in the period immediately after 1945 um, not sustained in terms of long-term electoral political success throughout the post-war decade. So um, some of your listeners will know that Labour's in power from 1945 to 1951, but then it loses office. It doesn't then come back to government until 1964, and it then has a somewhat unsatisfactory period of losing another election in 1970, and then having a very difficult experience in the 1970s with the economic and political crises of that period. So really, the founding theme of the book, the starting point, is why does this social democratic party, which comes to power with all of these advantages, powerful working class movement, large scale political party, radical program for office to build a new welfare state and create a more just society, why does it struggle so much to achieve these objectives? And in studying this history, what can we in more contemporary times try to understand about the difficulties which social democratic parties face? Right. But, uh, you know, when you tackle the post-war history, you clearly show the labour movement, as you say, embedded in a very specific social political structure, very outspoken when it comes to welfare state, uh, all really bang on on those issues. But then, you know, 70s are coming and the 70s, despite so many efforts, uh, the Labour Party sort of does survive the government with the European question even. And then is the 1979 where your book effectively starts, where you talk, okay. We are starting from something that is traumatic defeat. How did it come to that? Well, I think the defeat is traumatic for several reasons. Obviously, the loss of office in 1979 is a big blow. And it comes after several years in which the Labour governments had experienced some very serious economic and political difficulties that they'd had to try to deal with, culminating in what's called the winter of discontent in 1978-79, a wave of strikes paralysing the UK economy, 
and then the Labour government becoming rather unpopular and losing really decisively, not by a huge margin, but decisively to Margaret Thatcher in 1979. But the point that I really make in the book is that it's not the electoral defeat that's so traumatic, but the sense that the left, in a broader sense, has really reached an impasse, or you might say it has arrived at a cul-de-sac, and it's not really clear where it goes next. So it's not just that it's electorally challenged, but also that the core assumptions and ideas of the left seem to be um, now in great difficulty. To give you a couple of examples, in terms of organisationally, an obvious point to make is that the trade union and labour movement, so the organised labour interest, is now under significant pressure. Um, After 1980, the membership of trade unions begins to decline. The anti-trade union legislation introduced by the Conservative governments, of course, has an impact. But there's also a sense that organised labour is weakening. Attached to that, though, is the sense that the ideological vision of the Labour Party in the post-war period has again reached an impasse. There's a sense that this vision is losing its relevance, it's losing its intellectual vitality. The ideas of a large-scale universal welfare state, collectivism, planning the economy, expanding social programmes, all of these ideas for a range of reasons, are coming under significant pressure. So, as I say, it's not just the electoral defeat, but also the sense that intellectually, the British left, as embodied in the Labour Party, is really on the back foot and facing um, really major challenges if it wants to try to re-establish itself as a potential party of power. Right. But many people, when they look back and the years that followed 1979, they do remember the hardship of, of course, the Conservative government and all the reforms, breaking of strikes, all that. But at the same time, they look with a lot of sentiment to the leadership of Neil Kinnock, right? I mean, there has been an attempt of modernising Labour back then. No, certainly. And from 1983 onwards, the Labour Party begins the very slow and protracted process of gradual modernisation, and certainly towards the end of the period, some evidence of electoral recovery. But it is an arduous and difficult process. And my book really, I think, tries to bring this out. It's not, when you look back, you would think you could see the Kinnock period as being somehow a a relatively smooth period of recovery. He gets into the leadership in 1983, begins to reform the party, modernises its structures, deals with some of the problems that have emerged in the 1970s, and then somehow Labour is on this um, inexorable, um, predetermined path towards electoral and political rejuvenation. But it wasn't really like that. It was, of course, much more difficult. Um, Kinnock faced major opposition, major obstacles to reforming the party. In some instances, it took six or seven years to actually get meaningful reform through the structure of the party. And of course, also, As you'll be aware, both in 1987 and 1992, Labour loses elections. 1987 is probably less surprising because the Thatcher governments are still very much in the ascendancy. But of course, by 1992, you have really a rather unpopular Conservative government, although there is a new Prime Minister in John Major. Nevertheless, the expectation of many political commentators was that in 92, Labour would win the election. But of course, it was defeated, albeit by a small margin. And I think, as I try to bring out in the book, that 92 defeat is a really difficult, traumatic moment for the party, because it realises that all of the reforms it's introduced in in the previous nine years have not borne the electoral fruit that was hoped. And so there's this real sense then that maybe the left is going to have to engage in a much more fundamental rethink. 
both of its ideas, but also of its organisational structures and its approach to strategy and campaigns. But this renewal comes, evidently. I mean, uh, the biggest discussion that the social democracy in Europe is still having is about the third way. Was it right? Was it wrong? What did it bring? So let's spend a couple of minutes talking about the third way that you not only experienced firsthand, but also helped shaping. So, uh, you know, 13 unprecedented years in the government, the party functioning as a massive campaign machine, so many supporters, so many fans of particular leaders, uh, you know, Gordon Brown, uh, Tony Blair, of course. So what inspiration can we draw still from this uh, decade? Because I mean, as I said, this is probably the still ongoing conflict and still the biggest intellectual and ideological debate that we are still having in our movement. No, you're absolutely right. And of course, the third way has been in many respects, a rather divisive um, political project within the European left, because of course, there are parties in Europe which have really opposed some of the key thrusts or the key tenants of the third way. There are certainly many politicians, including in the British Labour Party, but indeed in many other European social democratic parties who have themselves been personally very uncomfortable with the direction that the third way has taken. One starting point which I explore in the book is that we have to understand the origins of the third way. And I think that one of the errors that's been made in some of the subsequent commentary is this idea that the third way is simply a capitulation to the right-wing forces that were so ascendant in the 1980s, particularly in the United Kingdom and the United States through the Thatcher governments and, of course, through the Reagan administration in America. I think to read the third way in that manner is something of a mistake. This is not to say, of course, that the neoliberal ideologies of that time didn't have any effect in shaping Labour's thinking. I think it's implausible to, to make that claim. But my argument in the book is that, in fact, the third way is much more reflective of debates that were taking place within the left than that account of capitulation to the new right necessarily assumes. What the third way was trying to do was really address the core questions that, as I say in the book, had begun to emerge from the 1970s onwards about the obsolescence of traditional left ideas, ideological visions, views of institutions, and of course, organisational structures in terms of the trade unions, the mass Labour Party, and so on. And whatever the third way got wrong subsequently, and as I point out in the book, there were some real substantive problems associated with the third way, which of course we see very much in the light of the 2008 financial crisis. But nonetheless, despite those problems, we need to interpret the third way as being a movement that arises much more substantively from within the left than just being a simple response to Reaganism and Thatcherism. But for many, of course, uh, it has been a sort of uniting threat. I mean, uh, and it's not only in Britain. So let me also use your European expertise here. You have been one of the co-founders and the longest serving honorable member of the FEPS Next Left Research Programme as well. Um, and I think, uh, you know, when we look at the third way, it's quite important to ask the question about the European impact that the uh, third way and the new Labour have had. I think many people are forgetting about uh, Tony Blair being at the PES uh, Congress in Malmö, being part of the big European narrative, uh, signing the Common Manifesto with Gerhard Schroeder. So uh, this legacy is still somehow alive, right? No, I completely agree with you. And I think your point is, is a very important one about understanding, in a sense, the European origins of the third way. Um, again, I think when you look particularly at the academic literature, the, the dominant view is that the third way 
espouses really the very close connection between the British Labour Party and the centre-left Democrats in the United States. And of course, one can't entirely underplay that. It was a very important relationship. There's no question. Um, British politics, as is the case with other continental European countries, um, is heavily influenced by politics in the United States. That's long been the case. And it was certainly the case with British Labour. Obviously, the example that Clinton provided of being successfully elected in 1992 on this so-called New Democrat programme was for the British Labour Party, um, a very powerful example of what could be done to defeat the right. And so politicians like Neil Kinnock, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, were undoubtedly very heavily influenced by this Democrat experience. But I think as your question infers, what's sometimes therefore underplayed is just the extent to which this third way was really being shaped in a heavily European context. And the dialogue among social Democrats in different parts of Europe about the third way project was very significant in framing the third way in Britain. I think it's European origins have been systematically understated. And you can see that in a few key areas. So in terms of the reshaping of the welfare state, the programme that Labour introduced after 1997 to remodel the welfare system, I mean, that was based on a fundamental assumption that there was a desire not to cut back welfare, but to remake the welfare state so it was more effective in achieving the goals of equity and fairness Um, that were originally stipulated after the Second World War. And that was done, as you know, by introducing programmes like welfare to work, massively increasing investments in areas like childcare, early years services, trying to radically increase women's ability to participate in the labour market. All examples of which, as you know, came from the Nordic countries rather than really from the United States. And of course, there were other examples of innovation in Germany, in France, in Italy, in Spain, in Portugal and so on that British European centre-left modernisers drew upon. So as I say, I think to understand Third Way is just a a reaction to the new right born of experience in the US is seriously misleading. The European context was and remains extremely significant and important. And speaking of that European context, of course, now uh, we are sadly in the first uh, year of a real Brexit. So I have to pop this question. The speech of uh, Tony Blair by the time that the UK had taken over the presidency of the uh, European Union, the one delivered in the European Parliament, is probably one of the forum really generations, the most pro-European, the most forward-looking, the most believing and sharing the confidence in Europe. So what happened? I mean, uh, you this was a clear message. Uh, Labour was so uh, much riding also on the uh, on the presidency. And today, uh, you know, uh, we've seen just a divorce. So how come? No, you're right. And I think it's a central question that I do attempt to answer in the book. And really, the question is, Why did Labour, coming to power in 1997 with this very strong, even evocative pro-European vision, why was it not able to sustain that um, throughout its period in government? I think there are a couple of events that help to explain this, but there's also a general strategic problem that Labour has. And I would summarise it as the following – that essentially um, Tony Blair develops a narrative which he's very comfortable articulating, which is really about the ways in which Europe needs to reform itself in order to become more relevant, more effective in dealing with the problems of the modern world. 
The difficulty is that he doesn't match that narrative with a narrative which is much more directed at UK voters, which is about the necessity of Britain's European Union membership in terms of achieving the goals that he has set out for his own government. And I think it's his struggle or his difficulty in making that pro-European case that helps to explain why we see this gradual drift of Britain away from Europe, which, of course, culminates in the Brexit referendum in 2016 and the decision to leave the EU. I think there are a couple of events, though, that also feed into this process. One is obviously the decision of the Labour government not to join the euro. And in the book, I try to explain some of the reasons why eventually the Labour government came to a decision not to join the single currency. The other event, though, is, of course, Iraq, where although in a sense the issues and the circumstance of Iraq are very particular to that case, it does also have an effect on Labour's position and Blair's strategy in terms of Europe, because, of course, it leads to this disastrous divide between the French and German governments and the British government, which I think, again, has a serious impact on the kind of pro-Europeanism of the Blair and then, of course, subsequently the Brown administration. So I think, as I say, this problem of the narrative of really being upfront with the British people about the necessity of pro-Europeanism, but also events that intervene after 1997, all contribute to this gradual drift, which, of course, then culminates in this decision in 2016 to leave the European Union, which I think just finally, for politicians like Tony Blair, is is obviously a disastrous outcome and is almost shocking in terms of what they would have expected to have happened in 1997. I think that Tony Blair would always have recognised that joining the euro would have been a challenge for the UK for various reasons, both political and economic. But to have got to a situation where within 20 years of that government being elected, the UK was no longer a member of the EU is an extraordinary historical turn of events and one that no doubt both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and other Labour politicians of that period really deeply regret. I would definitely imagine so, especially that uh, the point of Iraq that you've mentioned as one of the explanations of, uh, you know, the drift and uh, the, the, the factions is uh, also vastly quoted in the books of other leaders who all were ready to entrust the third way, Ricardo Lagos, to give an example of someone who's not European, um, and who found particularly Iraq in a sort of uh, circumstances of cognitive dissonance, because on one side, uh, Third Way was all about cooperation, Glen Eagle, elevating people worldwide from poverty. Uh, and then on the other hand, uh, Iraq, uh, where there's so much to be said also about uh, the uh, mechanism of uh, cooperation and so on. Now, sadly, we are arriving to the point where Labour is losing its uh, power, 2010. And, uh, you know, that's uh, the part in the book uh, where um, I would like to come to some sort of a big sparkle of optimism. But instead, uh, you as an author are giving us rather a sort of a gloomy Uh, a picture saying, well, was this decade really lost to this last 10 years? No, you're right. And I'm I'm sorry to be gloomy. Um, I would love to be, of course, more optimistic. But I think my analysis in this section of the book is really just informed by this very basic point that if we learn from the cycles of history and if we try to learn from a party's experience, obviously one of the standouts points about Labour's experience in the post-war period is, it, is it, that it has these long periods of opposition. And what one would have hoped is that when it lost the election in 2010, you know, all parties in liberal democracies will experience electoral defeat. Of course, that's inevitable. 
It's natural and indeed it's healthy. But the key point is that a party has to be able to recover quickly so that it doesn't um, experience these long and very painful periods of opposition. And really my argument in this section of the book is about why was Labour not able to do that after 2010? Um, 11 years after the 2010 defeat, Labour is obviously still in opposition. And I think it would be generally agreed is still some way off being able to seriously compete with the government at the next election, despite all the mistakes and problems that have been arising around um, the COVID-19 crisis. Um, and so, yes, the chapters really try to explore why that's the case. Why was the Ed Miliband project not able to re-establish Labour's electoral ascendancy? And then, of course, also, despite the hopes that many on the left had for it, why was the Corbyn project after 2015 not so effective in re-establishing the Labour Party as a serious political and electoral force. And here, I don't argue that everything about Corbynism was disastrous. On the contrary, I think that Corbynism did in some respects have a positive effect in opening up important debates and questions that Labour really had to confront if it was going to put itself in a position where it could be a serious contender for power again. But having said that, we can see that by the 2019 general election, Labour under Corbyn is just not regarded by sufficient numbers of voters as being a plausible party of government. And so Labour loses, Keir Starmer comes to power. As you will know, um, there is a generally positive perception of Keir Starmer. Labour's position has been improving in the polls, but there's still a long way to go before we can say that Labour stands a very strong chance of being the next government in Britain. Right. But uh, uh, now we have uh, this, uh, you know, the situation with Keir Starmer. The first uh, regional elections are very uh, nearby, just a couple of uh, weeks really away from today. And in the book, uh, which, of course, being chair of Policy Network, uh, being part of the Feb Scientific Council, naturally, um, also you try uh, to absorb all the historical lessons and give some uh, advice of what Keir Starmer should do to be successful. Um, could you share a bit of uh, this uh, thoughts with us because I find it particularly interesting when you also talk about one country project, when you talk about the innovative ideas, but also when you talk about uh, you know smart strategy vis-a-vis electorate, disguising sort of or discrediting sort of the strategy of talking about squeeze middle that in the end is only as if I may quote you euphemism for core electorate strategy. So what? political, what ideological and what electoral strategy Kiem Stammer and the Labour Party with him should take to be successful again? Well, let me say that um, to give advice, of course, also means recognising that the challenges for a leader of the opposition are very, very considerable. Um, in Britain, the leader of the opposition role is generally regarded as the most difficult job in UK politics. And so nothing that I try to suggest here is advice given, which implies that this is somehow easy, because it isn't. But I think on the basis of Labour's historical experience, there are a couple of lessons that are worth really reflecting on. One is that, of course, a party cannot recover politically and then stand a reasonable chance of winning an election simply by dumping the perceived policy and ideological baggage that led to its defeat in the previous election. And I think this very clearly comes out of the Kinnock period, where if you look at what happens in 87 and 1992, as we've seen, Labour loses. Part of the reason why I think it loses is that it has dumped many of the policies that led to its disastrous defeat in 1983, but it hasn't yet been able to forge a credible, convincing package of policies, particularly on the economy, 
that mean that voters see it as a serious governing party. And I think the same point applies to Keir Starmer in 2021. Obviously, Labour's defeated in 2019. There are clearly policies that it was committed to that probably do need now to um, be dispensed with, but that's not sufficient. You then have to be able to put forward a programme which has a positive vision that voters can both understand and that they also see as credible and convincing and competent. The other point I would just make is about the One Nation project across all of this. And it's simply to say that for the Labour Party, because it's a class-based party, historically, there's always been this temptation to try to project its appeal based around attracting particular voter groups. And you quoted a few moments ago, Anya, the example of Ed Miliband's concept of the squeeze middle as being a manifestation of this in more recent times. We want to appeal to a particular section of society that is economically disadvantaged. Now, I understand all the reasons why Labour politicians would seek to do this. And of course, you know, the liberation of the most disadvantaged is clearly a core imperative of all parties of the left, the Social Democrats and so on. But the difficulty with it is that we can see from electoral and political experience that it's very hard for Social Democratic parties to mobilise sufficient numbers of voters simply by appealing to those core groups. And so what you need is really what I would call a one nation project, which is much more about unifying the electorate in order to carry through a set of reforms which can, yes, appeal to and deal with the problems facing the most disadvantaged, but which will also lead to greater modernisation of institutions and social justice for the the entire society. And although it may seem like a nuanced point, having that one nation vision seems to me to be extremely important if the left is going to recover. And just, uh, you know, uh, it has been extremely insightful and extremely delighting conversation. But uh, there's one more question, if you allow me, I would like to ask at the end. With all the historical lessons that we've learned from the Labour Party, that so many parties in Europe were looking up to uh, in many different times, uh, you know, uh, name it. Uh, I mean, Third Way, of course, was considered by example for many. Um, but not only, I mean, Neil Kinnock's campaign, um, even before, I mean, many were looking at uh, the different positioning of the Labour Party. Now, there is a hope because uh, you've been trying to sort of move from the uh, gloomy, perhaps lost a decade uh, chapter to, okay, there is a hope, but there is a chance to be optimistic and confident. And what would you say to our European audience? What are the lessons from uh, the British Labour Party that they could draw uh, for the European social democracy and for the respective sister parties across the EU? Well, just one point I want to make, which doesn't answer your question directly, but I think is important, (laughs) which is to say that um, Brexit has, of course, happened to the regret of many social democrats in the UK, one point that I think many of us are very passionate about is that this must not diminish the role of the British Labour Party within the community of sister centre-left parties in Europe. And the reason for that is partly because, of course, many of us are committed pro-Europeans who want to seek close ties and links with countries in the European Union, even if the UK isn't an EU member. But it's also a reflection of the fact that as this book shows, as my book attempts to argue, European influences have always been incredibly important for the British Labour Party. And that's not just the case in the Kinnock period or the Blair and Brown period. If you go right back to the late 1950s, early 1960s, the reformers of the party at that time were all powerfully influenced by what was happening in Germany, in France, in Spain, in Sweden, 
and so on. The experience of centre-left parties in those countries and other countries was incredibly important in terms of shaping the ideological and policy direction of the British Labour Party. So for that reason, we have to maintain these ties. In terms of lessons from UK Labour for the other countries, the other parties, I would just make one point, which is that it seems as if on the basis of Labour's experience in the post-war period, going back to 1945, and then looking all the way forward to the present day, 70 or so years later, the key point is, as a political party, you have to be able to both project economic credibility, but also a sense of political radicalism. And I think in the Blair years, in the Brown years, sometimes Labour looked as if it was economically competent, but perhaps lacked a sense of radical passion. If we go forward to the Corbyn period, Labour is undoubtedly a party which has real commitment in terms of its political radicalism, but frankly isn't perceived by enough voters to be economically competent and credible. And so the lesson I take away from that, which I think is relevant to other parties as well across Europe, is to be viable parties of office with a reasonable chance of both winning elections and governing successfully, those parties have to be able to combine economic credibility with a real sense of radical vision, a desire not just to maintain the status quo, but to change the society in meaningful ways that are consistent with our historical values. So that's at least, I think, one reflection that may be useful in thinking about where centre-left parties across Europe go next. What an incredible cliffhanger. I think that there is no doubt that anybody listening to this podcast will write on, uh, try to order the book just for a repetition, just for reminding, a little commercial break. Patrick Diamond, the British Labour Party in opposition and power, 1979. 2009. Patrick, thank you so much. Incredibly insightful and uh, inspiring conversation. And let's keep fingers crossed that your book is going to be as inspiring as it has been in the conversation also for the political leaders striving for economic credibility and political radicalism so we can see social democrats in Europe rising again, winning and being able to govern successfully. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPSTalks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned.